Well, hey everyone, if we haven't met before, my name's Sam and I'm one of the pastors here and welcome to my home. This is so fun that we get to do this here and that I get to welcome you into my space, even if it's online. Well, today we're going to continue our series on community. It's called We the Church. And, and this is such an important conversation because community is at the very heart of the Christian calling. As Pastor Mark said a few weeks ago as he opened up our series, we were made for community. And, and we're made in the image of this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and it's our model, our anchor for Christian community. There's so many facets to this conversation, and we've covered many of them over this last few weeks as we've looked at friendship and and family and communion with God himself, but it's important that we also think about this for our neighbors. See, we live in an age where humans are desperate for real connectedness. We have have more means of connection than any other time in history with the advance in transportation and technology and the internet and social media, and yet... We live in fractured homes with with broken relationships. We wander around in loneliness and and many, many millions of people die alone. And there's an epidemic of loneliness, maybe never never more evident than, at least in my lifetime, than in spring of 2020, as, as hundreds of thousands of people in our country, millions around the world have experienced loneliness that comes from self-isolation. And, and maybe that's you. Maybe even today you're experiencing that kind of loneliness. Today we're going to look at, at the book of Luke chapter 14. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there, grab it, turn there right now, and, and it's Luke chapter 14. If, if you spend any length of time in church, you're probably familiar with this passage. At the top of my Bible, it's labeled the parable of the banquet feast. This idea of feasting, of, of, of food, of hospitality, it's a central theme all throughout Scripture. Uh, Pastor John talked about it a little bit last week and introduced the idea of the importance of food. But rooted back all the way to the Old Testament, we see that God cares a lot about what we do with food. That, that with food, we have the opportunity to bring about justice, feeding the poor, serving the oppressed, loving our neighbor. But we also have the opportunity to be unjust to be greedy, to withhold these basic human needs such as food and drink and care. So built into the very law of the Israelite people, God commanded them to use their crops, their vineyards, their food for good. And then jump over to the New Testament and so much of Jesus' ministry on earth revolves around the table. So much of Jesus' ministry on earth is around food. And one theologian notes that Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, he's either going to a meal He's at a meal or he's coming from a meal. <laughs> there's, there's over 50 references to food in the book of Luke alone. And, and, and one of those references is this passage of scripture in Luke 14 that we're going to read together. And so to set the scene, Jesus is at a house party and he, he's eating and drinking and socializing. And I imagine maybe there's a little bit of a lull in the conversation. And, and Jesus takes the opportunity, as he often does, to interrupt the status quo and teach the guests and the host about a kingdom approach to hospitality. And so Luke chapter 14, we'll start reading in verse 12. Here's what it says. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they can't repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything's now ready. 
But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servants, go out quickly into the streets and alleys and, and the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house may be full. I tell you, not one of those who was invited will get a taste of my banquet. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Well, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we acknowledge your presence here as we, as, as we learn from your word, as, we, as we're in community with one another. And, and I pray as we, as we learn from your example, as we learn from this text in the book of Luke, I pray that you would speak to us. Give us ears that are open to hear from you, we pray. Amen. Well, if you lived sometime between the second century and the 16th century, which, which is a broad spectrum, and, and if you were a man, a woman, or a child, and if you lived as far south as northern Africa, or as far east as modern Iraq, or even as far east as, as India, as far north as modern Scotland, as, as far west as modern Spain, kind of that region, and if you were out of necessity or, or out of freedom, needing to make your way on a journey across the remoteness of that world, you would in all likeliness spend all day of your journey spanning the horizons for one thing, a church. And sometimes these, these churches were cathedrals, but oftentimes they were monasteries, communities of men and women who were living together around a common rule of life. And as part of that rule of life, they would take in strangers, they'd take in refugees and, and, and foreigners. So this is what you'd be looking for if you're, if you're on a journey. Because no matter whether it was a cathedral or a monastery or, or a simple little church, you knew that those places would take you in without fail. And if you weren't a believer yourself, there's probably lots of things you didn't know about the Christian faith, about how they lived or what they believed. But there's one thing you certainly knew. And that was that Christians, that, that the church was a place that would take in strangers and treat them as honored guests. They provide a warm bed, pull up a chair at the table, and, and serve up whatever food they had. There's a number of historical documents that tell us, uh, tell us about this, and one of them is just this beautiful document that I read this week. It's the Rule of St. Benedict. And in this rule, and, and there's others like it, there, it's a kind of a code of conduct, a community standard of sorts, of how to live out the scriptures, the way of Jesus in community. And in these documents, they gave, they gave strict instructions for how Christians are to treat strangers and foreigners. They were to show extreme measures of hospitality. And this orientation of hospitality, it wasn't driven out of a social pressure or a folksy ethos. It was, it was actually driven out of a deep conviction about who God is and who our neighbor is and who we are as the, as the people of God. And this deep conviction towards hospitality led people from outside the church to describe Christians as kind, loving, welcoming people. So much so that they were actually seeking out Christians. A lot of my understanding of, of Christian hospitality has been shaped by a pastor, a professor, a Bible teacher named Greg Thompson. And he notes that, that it's such an honor to be part of a movement, uh, to be part of the family of God with this rich legacy of loving neighbor, of loving foreigners and friends. Like, there's almost a sense of pride to know that that's in our heritage, being a place of warmth and welcome and, and a joy to be considered brothers and sisters with saints who, who've gone before us and just lived out their faith in beautiful ways, reflecting the Savior and how they love their neighbor. But, but as time has gone on and 
as we find ourselves living in the 20th century, 21st century for a variety of reasons. Uh, this practice of hospitality has been largely lost in the Western church. This love of stranger, this open door to those in need, is, is, has maybe been regarded as unsafe, or, or at best it's inconvenient. Maybe, maybe we've bought into the ideology of individualism. But either way, over time, Christians have become far more known for what they stand against and less known for their love. And although there's many people in the world who are still wandering, who are searching for community, seeking someone to treat them like family, someone to care, someone to listen, to break bread with them, to pull up a chair at the table, they're not looking for us. They're not, they're not looking to steeples as a place of refuge. But it seems to me, just as equally, we're not out looking for them. It's my conviction that if we want to see our neighbors come to know Jesus, it's imperative that we recapture a vision for Christian hospitality. Hospitality, as taught by the Bible, comes from this Greek word. It's a compound word. It's, it's philoxenia. Philo means, means love. It's a brotherly love. And, and xenos means stranger, foreigner, immigrant, refugee, outsider. It, it, it's a guest. What, what philoxenia or hospitality means is literally the love of stranger. It's the welcome, the warm embrace. Xenophobia is the opposite of hospitality. It's the fear, the phobia, the dislike of stranger. It's, it's a prejudice of sort. But the work of the Christian in the world is not to exclude our neighbors, not to push them away because they're not Christian or because they swear or because they aren't like us, but, but to include them through hospitality. See, going back to our text about the banquet feast, it wasn't uncommon to throw a dinner party. It is actually very common practice of the day. But Jesus steps in, as he often does, and he flips that cultural understanding of hospitality on its head. Uh, let's, let's go back to verse 12. Here, here's what it says. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they might invite you back, and so you'd be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. I just want to take a moment and talk about the historical context a little bit. This is not a democratic society that Jesus is living in. It's, it's a hierarchical society. It's extremely class-driven. And the only way you could get something done was if you knew someone at the top. You had to know someone at the top. That's just how it was. And so as a result, everyone's trying to get to know people who are higher in the class system, to become friends with people who are in power. And people at the top, they're willing to do that, to build relationships with those who are lower in the class system, as long as uh, you were someone who could do a favor for them or open a door for them from time to time. Basically support their interests, build their reputation in town among the kind of common folk. And so how did you build these kind of power networks? How did you build relationships with people in power? Through hospitality, inviting people into your home. You brought them in, and then they reciprocated and invited you in, and you went back and forth, and, and you tried really hard to get people into your home who could bring value to your network. There's buyers and suppliers and middlemen, and this was called the patronage system. You only invited people into your home or went to people's home if you knew that somehow you could get some kind of value from it. So when Jesus makes this statement regarding who you should invite to the table, it's, it's completely trashing the patronage system. It's important to note that, that when Jesus says, don't invite your friends or family into your home, this is an idiomatic statement. It's, it's an exaggeration, a figure of speech. And he's not saying you can never invite your mother-in-law over again, although some of you are probably thinking that Jesus is just hooking you up right now. 
but, but what he's saying is still quite provocative. He's saying that you should actually prefer, you should prefer to invite those who can't repay you, who can add nothing to your social position. If you're my disciple, he says, then the patronage system means nothing to you. You invite people into your home. You put on a feast for people who can't repay you. Not to get anything in return, but just to love them as I have loved you. In her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Rosaria Butterfield explains hospitality like this. She says, turning strangers into neighbors and neighbors into the family of God. How good is that? Turning strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. And actually, Rosaria Butterfield is an interesting case study on this topic of hospitality. In her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, she shares her, her testimony, kind of how she came to faith. And basically, she was this far-left, radical lesbian feminist. And, and she'd also been a 10-year professor at uh, Syracuse University with a specialty in postmodern critical theory and literature. It's quite a mouthful. She was writing a book on, on, on Bible-believing Christians, and pretty much she was saying that they are the worst. They're a threat and a menace to society. And as part of her study, she had to meet a few of these Bible-believing Christians. She'd written an editorial in the New York paper that was a scathing review of this men's conference that was happening in her city, and, and just saying how it represented everything that she was against. And a local pastor wrote, wrote in a letter a response, and it was gracious and, and thoughtful, and it came with an invitation to dinner. She figured, I have to do some research anyway, so I might as well go over. And so she writes about pulling into his driveway, and she's thinking, am I crazy to do this? He represents everything that I'm against. And, and then she says, all right, I'm, I'll go in. And so she approaches the front door, and she just writes about her experience with hospitality, with welcome, and, and how it changed her life. She came back to dinner again and again, and then she came to Bible study, and then to small group. And a couple years later, she went to church with them. And she talks about uh, her confusion at first as they sang these ancient hymns and these spiritual songs. And over time, she began to, to sing those songs as well. And a number of years later, now she's a follower of Jesus, married to a reformed Presbyterian pastor. They pastor a church together outside Duke University. She's a mom to both biological kids and foster kids. And she's been radically transformed by the gospel. But it all started with a conversation around a table. Isn't that beautiful? Henry Nguyen said this, hospitality therefore means primarily the creation of a free space where the stranger can enter in and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place. And that's what, that's what the pastor and his wife did as they invited Butterfield for dinner. They didn't argue or condemn her or try to outsmart her with some apologetical argument. They just pulled up a chair. They poured a glass of wine. They, they treated her like family. And as she watched them, as, as she watched the way they lived and interacted with their family, as she talked with them, and as she slowly, very slowly began to interact with scripture and with prayer, God did a work in her heart. Do you know what Jesus' mission on earth was? If we're going to sum up Jesus' mission uh, while he was on earth and doing ministry into one punchy statement, what would it be? Well, Matthew, one of the biblical authors, he tells us that, that the mission of Jesus was to seek and save the lost. It's in Matthew 18. It says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This was his reason for coming, to reconcile all people to himself, all things to himself. And he's still about that today. He's seeking and saving and inviting to the banquet feast. But how did he do it? That was his mission. That was his reason for coming. But, but, but what was his methodology? How did he do it? By eating and drinking 
Luke 7, 34 says, the son of man came eating and drinking. This was, this was so much at the center of Jesus' methodology that, that he was described by the Pharisees and the religious teachers as a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. One theologian said it like this, Jesus got himself killed because of the way he ate. It was absolutely provocative that Jesus would eat with tax collectors and, and prostitutes and sinners, people at the very bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. Other rabbis or teachers of the law, they wouldn't be caught dead with a sinner of that caliber. But Jesus called them friends. He ate with them. He conversed with them. He loved them. Central to Jesus' ministry on earth was, was table fellowship, eating and drinking with sinners. His method for ushering in the kingdom was conversation around the dinner table. And as followers of him, his call on us is to do the same. The author of Hebrews writes, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. And as I was reading this text in, in our text of the banquet feast, I was, I was immediately thinking about all the volunteers in our church who serve in our refugee ministry. Earlier this year, I had the privilege of going to the Vancouver airport and signing for some families as they entered Canada. And... I got to experience the love and the warmth and the welcome that refugees receive from folks in our church as, as they're embraced as long lost family. Every week I also get to witness dozens of people in our church pack up food hampers and deliver them to families in need in the Tri-Cities. And I just wanna say well done church. You are practicing hospitality and the love of strangers and, and caring for the practical and physical needs so well. There's people in our church who are truly leading the charge in practicing hospitality, and they're representing Jesus so well to our community. But I know for myself that it's, it's really difficult to tangibly and consistently love my neighbors. Like, I'm talking about the people who live in this apartment building. It takes serious amounts of intentionality and a willingness to be inconvenienced. And if I'm honest, I'm pretty comfortable with my little circle of people, with the friends that, that I already have. And so practicing hospitality, showing love to strangers, often gets bumped to, to lower in my priority list because it doesn't really serve me at all. And whether it's a busy calendar or, or a fear of saying the wrong thing in a hyper-political climate or, or if it's, it's that, that my home's just my place of refuge and I'd rather watch Netflix than have a conversation with my neighbors. We must recapture this important practice of hospitality if we're going to see our neighbors encounter the person of Jesus. We live in a world where, where it's easier to post an article on Facebook for hundreds of people to see. It's easier to do that than to walk across the cul-de-sac with a plate of warm cinnamon buns and a smile. You know, I've never seen, I've never heard of a person, at least I don't know anyone who said this. I'm so thankful for that condescending Facebook post. When you, when you made me feel like a gross, immoral person, that is what made me want to become one of you. That's what made me decide to be a Christian. I've never heard that. Have you? <laughs> what those who've been rescued by Jesus always point to is love. They treated me with such kindness. Christians who practice hospitality, they're, they're just so disarming. Not, not trying to change people, but allowing the Holy Spirit to do that. They use their homes, their table, as a vehicle for God's transformative work. Sometimes I think we need to be challenged to get off Facebook. Stop, stop tricking ourselves into thinking that people care what we have to say on Twitter and start peeling some potatoes. If we're going to see the, the, our, our neighborhoods transformed and our communities transformed by Jesus, we need to get close enough to the stranger to put the hand of the stranger into the hand of our Savior. I want to share a testimony with you of just a beautiful woman in our church named Wanda Hesmert. 
Many of you would know Wanda, especially if you attend our Mariner campus. And, and Wanda is not only one of the most hospitable people I've ever met, but her life was radically impacted by the hospitality of strangers. And when I heard this story from her, I wanted you to hear it as well. And so here's just a short interview with my friend Wanda. Well, I want to introduce you to my friend Wanda. And a few months ago, Wanda, mm -hmm. you, you invited me and my family over to yeah. your house and we had, uh, right. had dinner together. And that, mm -hmm. I mean, that in itself is such a beautiful example of hospitality that we were strangers. We didn't know each other very well. I think That's we'd right. had a few conversations mm -hmm. about the volume of the drums <laughs> or something like that. But yeah, yeah. we wanted to get yeah. to know each other. So yeah. you invited us into your home and, and shared stories. We sat around the dinner table and you made a beautiful meal. And one of the stories that we shared uh, <laughs> really stood out to me and it, it was a story of, of when you were young and growing up mm -hmm. and uh, in, during the world, World War II yeah. and there was a family that took you in mm -hmm. and yes. cared for you during that season yeah. and yeah. Uh, I was wondering could you just share some of that story with, yeah. with us? When the war ended, the Second World War ended in May in mm -hmm. 1945 and I was about 11 years old at that time and all of a sudden, there were so many children that were homeless. They had no family because, you know, so much separation everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so I was one of those kids. And um, so we were, the, yeah, alone. And so I ended up with the family um, that they didn't know me. I didn't know them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we never seen each other. But uh, I ended up in that family. Living with them? With the family, yeah. Okay. And they didn't know for how long. Mm. Because um, the Red Cross had to find relatives. And they were not rich people, they were poor people, mm -hmm. actually. And yeah, and the family that I stayed in, you know, I mean, they were so kind. They taught me how to live, okay? Mm -hmm. Say please and thank you and all that kind of, you know, mm -hmm. that I was born to me, okay? Mm -hmm. so, so the family that you, that you stayed with, can you kind of just tell me what was, what was so special about that time that you spent with them? Well, that time was, you know, that was the first time I was in the family where people were, they got along, mm -hmm. they didn't fight. Mm -hmm. um, I, that was foreign to me. My parents always were forever fighting and, you know, whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, they fight and they loved me. When you say they loved you, what did that look like? like how, did, how did you know they loved well, you? I could feel it. Wow. <laughs> you know, I mm -hmm. knew that they, they loved me, okay? They loved me and they wanted they me. Treated you like their they own. wanted me. They treated me like I belonged there. After nine months, um, the Red Cross found a relative. And so we had to, okay, I had to go to the relatives. Mm -hmm. She asked her, well, are you sure? Can I not take her back home, okay? She wanted to keep you. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. You know, imagine they had three children, two rooms. No room, no food, no nothing, right? Not much of anything. And they wanted to take me back, wow. you know? Anyway, and then later on, I spoke with this foster mother, you know? Years about, later, right? Years later, oh, I spoke with her. I went to visit her. Huh. Okay. What was that like? Oh, it was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it was wonderful. And so, yeah, but she told me when she left me that she would pray for me every day. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I know God put me there. I know that, mm. okay? Because that was a family and they showed God's love to me, okay? In really tangible yeah. ways, eh? Mm -hmm. Pulling yeah. up yeah. Uh, 
turning yeah. their bathtub into oh, a bed. Oh, absolutely. I mean, sharing yeah, whatever food yeah. they had. I mean, they shared what they had, and they didn't know for how long. Mm. Okay, they had no clue. Wow, and what an what an amazing example that is of the love yeah. of Christ. Yeah, oh, absolutely, today, and that adopts is adopts us into His family. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, family. and because of them, because of them, right? Mm-hmm. You're a Christian. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. When you think about about that family, what was so significant about your time there? Well, I learned how how a family lives. Hmm. Okay, because I'd never had it before. Okay. Mm-hmm. They didn't fight, they loved each other, they, it, they helped each other, and I did never experience that. My parents were always fighting, and mm. oh, it's terrible life, okay? Yeah. But that was the beginning. Wow. That was the beginning. It started right? with ordinary hospitality, mm-hmm. ordinary, ordinary couple, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's so yeah. cool. Ordinary. Hey, well, thanks for... Thanks for yeah. taking this time yeah. to chat, and thanks for the for the beautiful desserts and the coffee. You're and welcome. It's You're great welcome. to spend some time with you today. Yeah. yeah. So, what does this look like practically? What does this look like today in the midst of, of COVID nineteen? Well, well, we're all in different contexts right now, especially through this pandemic. And the worst application of this message would be to say, "Well, well, I can't host my neighbors right now for dinner, so I'm just going to start loving my neighbors after this whole COVID thing blows over." There's so many ways that that you can can simply love and embrace your neighbors right now, regardless of your context. So firstly, I'd say some of you have large homes and and lots of space where you could invite people right now and have some table fellowship. Amazing. If, If you have a large space, I'd encourage you, use it as an outpost for the gospel. Other people in our community, you live in condos or or your bubble would prevent you from being able to host strangers in your home. That's okay. Stay safe. That's important. But maybe embracing hospitality right now for you means baking some fresh chocolate chip cookies for people who live in your building or or just beginning that friendship with some love and care. Maybe it's it's throwing a social distance picnic for your neighbors. Maybe it's getting involved in, in our Alpha ministry. Or even Alpha Online. Do you know that that Alpha is really built around this whole idea of hospitality and and love of neighbors and strangers? And and so I'd encourage you, maybe it's inviting one of your friends in your community to Alpha and and engaging in that together. There's so many ways that this could look, and I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit will speak to you. Well, I want to end with one last quote from Rosaria Butterfield. It's just too good to leave out. So here's what she says. She says, Radically ordinary hospitality. Those who, love it, who live it, they see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. They know that they are like the meth addict and the sex trade worker. They take their own sin seriously, including the sin of selfishness and pride. They take God's holiness and goodness seriously. They use their Bible as a lifeline with no exceptions. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. When we've truly been impacted by the gospel, when when it's really seeped deep into our hearts, when we really understand that we are the stranger, that we were welcomed in, we're the poor, crippled, lame, blind beggar, and we were welcomed to the table, not because of anything we've done, but because of how good and how kind and how hospitable God is, then we want to do the same for our neighbors. The greatest gift of hospitality is exemplified on the cross of Jesus Christ. That while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, he welcomed us home. He treated us like honored guests. He called us friends. 
He welcomed us to the table. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, would you, would you teach us what it looks like to have your heart for our neighbors? We, we, we want to have this deep desire for those who are wandering, for those who need hope. And so I just pray that you would do that in my own heart, that you do that in the hearts of my friends. And, and uh, we want to represent you well to this world. Would you help our church to continue to be an outpost in the Tri-Cities, in the Lower Mainland, and in the world for the glory of God? That we'd see many lost people come home, but that it would start in our homes, in our communities, as we invite strangers to our tables. In your name we pray.